0: Hello and welcome to the June Archives atoms. It's Nick Brown here, as always, with Rachel Ibeka our senior editor. Welcome, Rachel.
1: Thanks, Nick. Hi.
0: Well, interesting issue. We're really spoilt for choice, and um, I wonder where you would want to to kick off.
1: Well, I'd like to kick off with the word plombage, as you so uh, lovely wrote uh, about that in your uh, atoms um, in the um, in the edition. And it kind of made, made me made me think uh, about uh, things we take for granted. So um, just briefly, plombage was thought to be uh, a remedy uh, against tuberculosis uh, and basically sort of collapse um, uh, an affected lung. Uh, and up until the 50s um, was thought to be fine, uh, and including one uh, author uh, saying, well, Extrapleural lucite ball plombage has a definite place in the treatment of pulmonary tuberculosis, and probably will be used more extensively in the future. That's quite a thing to say, and I'm sure that we might do similar with our current thinking. That's what I'd like to start, Nick. Are um, taken for granted, and maybe that it ain't necessarily so.
0: Interesting angle.
1: So for the. Um, the current discussion will be will be discussing uh, four papers uh, and all four of them in some some way or another relate to not taking anything for uh, for granted the first paper is by dr adam arshad and colleagues at university college london and king's college london uk uh, their paper is titled population based screening methods in biliary a systematic review and meta analysis Now, given the trajectory of untreated or late diagnosis of biliary atresia, there isn't any dissent that early diagnosis is key in order to prevent death or transplant or liver transplant. But how best to achieve an early diagnosis is not so clear. And Dr. Arshad and others performed a systematic review and meta-analysis on five methods for population screening of biliary atresia. Uh, briefly, these methods are stool colour charts, conjugated bilirubin measurements, assessments of stool light saturations, and measurements of urinary sulfated bile acids, and assessments of blood spot bile acids. Now, the authors identified um, several things, including the sensitivity and specificity of screening method in atresia detection, the age at CASAI, the intervention to um, restore uh, flow. Uh, biliartresia-associated morbidity and mortality, and the cost-effectiveness of screening. Now, taking all that into account, the findings of the paper, what would you say would be the best method to screen, Nick?
0: In terms of the pure numbers, the best performer uh, seemed to be conjugated bilirubin measurements. So um, uh, it had uh, sensitivity and specificity with pool sensitivity, and specificity of respectively 100% and 99.2%. But having said that, using stool colour charts was considerably more cost-effective and is easier to, uh, I suspect, easier to roll out at public health level, at the moment anyway. So both methods anyway, reduce the age at which a cassai operation is performed. Um, in other words, move forward the time at which the biliary atresia is picked up. But the effect of stool colour charts in Western countries was less prominent than in Asian countries. Now, we know that positive and negative predictive value is prevalence dependent, so that might be a factor. What matters ultimately is whether screening interventions can bring forward the age of performing a CASI to under 60 days of age. That's been the traditional cut-off. Of course, earlier than that is better. But thankfully, we can do away with the onerous tedious and uh, ultimately fairly pointless uh, bag urine collection, for now that is. Next, changing angle completely, is a paper on a more prevalent disease, bronchiolitis. Until we have a vaccine programme that prevents RSV bronchiolitis, and there's some very promising uh, trial data on maternal vaccination, as some of you will be aware, we'll be deciding on which modality is best to support infants through a time of respiratory distress and hypoxia. The paper, High Flow Oxygen Therapy in Moderate to Severe Bronchiolitis, a Randomised Control Trial, by Louise Kuhlman and colleagues from five large hospitals without a PICU in the Netherlands, describes a randomised trial of high flow nasal cannula oxygen versus low flow nasal cannula oxygen in infants with moderate to severe bronchiolitis. They define this as a, a saturation of less than 92% in air and severely impaired vital signs. The primary outcome was physiology based by means of a vital early warning score to capture respiratory distress. The study enrolled and analysed just over 100 infants and was slightly underpowered to the outcome of a measure of improved respiratory rate. No difference was found in this outcome measure, nor in nasogastric feeding, or to transfer to a PICU for invasive ventilation.
1: Again, we need to keep an open uh, mind and, and not take things uh, for granted. For instance, you know, how we define moderate to severe bronchiolitis varies. There isn't a um universally accepted definition, um, but in some sorts it would need to reflect um hypoxia and um uh, increased work of uh, of breathing, which the authors have done uh, modifying their early warning score parameters uh, in respect of respiratory distress to make it suitable for this uh, study. Having said that, um, I, I am happy that we are now seeing more evidence in terms of the use of high flow nasocannular oxygen in, in bronchiolitis. And interestingly, based on this study, um, there is. Uh, little to suggest that high-flow nasocyanin kind of oxygen has benefit over low-flow oxygen. Do you need to say that uh, there was no uh, mention of CPAP or uh, non-invasive ventilation as a potential alternative to intubation and ventilation? Uh, that wasn't the primary outcome measure, um, but uh, in neither group was there a, was there a difference? With this and, and other studies such as first ABC, um, which looked at high-flow nookine oxygen versus CPAP as interventions, I think we are having to start to think about where high-flow nookine oxygen might be useful. So just because we've got uh, the availability of a supportive modality does't mean to say that we shouldn't investigate how to best use it. Now, we'll do another pivot. To another type of taken for granted, and this time the uh, the taken for granted is not an intervention per se, but an outcome. Dr. Svetlana Glinianaya at Newcastle University in the UK and other colleagues present their findings on the outcome of children with Patao or Edwards syndrome in their paper "10-Year Survival of Children with Trisomy 13 or Trisomy 18: A Multi-Registry European Cohort Study." Now, these authors. Did a a huge task. They linked several databases across nine European countries and identified 252 live births with trisomy 13 and 602 with trisomy 18. I think key to this paper is that current thinking is that children with these trisomies have a universally poor outcome and are not really expected to survive beyond infancy. However, now with changes in technical opportunities, as well as shifts in societal expectations, things may have changed.
0: Well, food for thought, definitely. Um, The epidemiology suggests that though there's definitely a very high infant mortality, um, about 11% of children with trisomy 13 and 8% with trisomy 18 were estimated to survive to their 10th birthday. Approximately a third of those with trisomy 13 and a fifth with trisomy 18 surviving to four weeks of age were likely to survive to 10 years. These findings then lead to questions about offering interventions in infancy, and not just outcomes in terms of mortality, but also morbidity.
1: Yeah, I I think that's that's really important to have those two in mind uh, because. Poor outcome doesn't necessarily mean to say uh, a high mortality. Um, uh, and now that we can uh, do interventions, and there might be uh, better uh, provision for for children uh, in their infancy, uh, we now need to think about because when we do these things and the children survive, um, what 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 is their life going to look like? And I think that. Um, are going to be important conversations to be had in different uh, places, in and you know, not least um, uh, as the authors say during prenatal council.
0: Absolutely, we're in a in a world which people haven't quite caught up with. Somehow, things have changed enormously since the days when those textbooks, which gave the original figures and impressions, were printed. So finally, we come to the paper. Cerebral artery conditional blood velocity in sickle cell disease, multi-center study and evidence for active treatment um, by Dr. Emmanuel Modebi, Professor Iani Okpala and colleagues at the University of Nigeria Teaching Hospital. So, the authors identified by means of a transcranial Doppler ultrasound that about fifteen percent of children with sickle cell um, were at moderately high risk of stroke. Is a big proportion.
1: That proportion, uh, you know, we need to stand still by that. I think the authors have made a very clear case uh, for the need of preventative measures uh, in children with uh, sickle cell disease, and I suppose the the taking for granted that prevention is better than cure relates to sickle cell disease as no other. And what I'd like to see is that there's a huge investment in medications to relieve the preventable current outcomes um, in this uh, rather nasty disease. It's not quite my area of expertise, Nick. What what do you think might be on the horizon?
0: Exchange transfusion has been around for a long time, but is really for situations in which there are few other alternatives or no other alternatives, as well as hydroxycarbamide prophylaxis. But they've got major logistical and clinical downsides and are only used for the overtly high velocity group. There's some recent work though on uh, meagre fatty acids and potassium thiocyanate which means they might be more palatable in the broadest sense and effective options in the near pipeline for those whose stenosis might progress are certainly in the risk group for, for doing so. That's been really interesting. A lot of material to chew over. So uh Thanks very much for today's discussion, Rachel.
1: It was a pleasure, as always, Nick.
0: And to everyone listening, thanks for joining us this time. There's, of course, much more in the issue on adc.bmj.com and the podcast, of course, are available on a number of platforms, including Spotify and Apple. It's been great having you with us today. Thanks so much for listening. See you next time. Bye for now.